Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions. Giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. Thank you for joining us for All Shall Be Well, conversations with women in the Academy and beyond. In this episode, Women in the Academy and Professions Director Karen Heiss-Guzman interviews Dr. Amanda Bankhausen, Senior Professor of Old Testament at Calvin Theological Seminary and Researcher in Biblical Interpretation and Reception History. Listen in as they discuss Amanda's new book, The Gospel According to Eve, A History of Women's Interpretation, as well as the importance of recovering and including women's voices in order to hear more fully the truth of God's word for us. We hope you'll enjoy this interview as much as we did. This is Karen Heiss-Guzman, and I have the privilege of talking today with Dr. Amanda Bankhausen, who is the writer of The Gospel According to Eve, A History of Women's Interpretation, soon to be published by InterVarsity Press. Thank you, Amanda, for your willingness to have a conversation with us today. Would you be willing to tell us a bit yeah, about your here. educational background and what you're doing now, and then maybe one or two things that you love about your work. Sure, yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's an honor to be having this conversation with you today. So thank you for that. Yeah, so I did my undergraduate at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. I come from Canada. And during my last year of university, I really felt a strong call to pursue theological education. So I am a longtime, lifetime member of the Christian Reformed Church, and so I packed my bags and went off to Calvin Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is our denominational seminary, and received my MDiv degree from there. I served in campus ministry for a while before pursuing a doctoral degree in Old Testament at the University of Toronto, Toronto School of Theology. And currently, I find myself back at my alma mater, Calvin Seminary. I'm teaching Old Testament here. Yeah, it's great to be back here. Oh, and you asked about (laughs) something that I love about what I'm doing now. So yeah, I have this real privilege of being able to teach students the Old Testament. And one of the things I love about doing that is introducing them to the stories in a fresh way by disrupting some of the the assumptions that they make when they come to reading the stories. So uh, we all come, or many of us come, with preconceived ideas of what these stories in the Old Testament or what the Old Testament has to say about God and about us. And uh, to be able to dig deeper and, and go deeper with students and disrupt some of the assumptions that they're making so that they hear the word of God afresh. So it's a real joy and delight to be able to do that and watch students have those aha moments where yes. they're like, wow, I never saw that or noticed that before. So yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of fun. fun thing to be able to spend your life doing, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. And you state at the very beginning of your book, I'll quote you here, in all the crazy dreams I had for my life, not one of them included writing a book on women interpreters. So if, that, if that's the case, tell us how it is that you actually came to be interested in the topic and write a book. 
Yeah. So it had never occurred to me to think that women in history had written on scripture. So I went through my whole MDiv program and never even thought to ask, are there others, <laughs> women who wrote on, on scripture as well as men? And it wasn't until I started my doctoral program and I did my doctoral work with Marion Taylor, who has been working on this for some time. And uh, she had published Let Her Speak for Herself, which is an anthology of 19th century women who wrote on Genesis. And then uh, the Handbook of Women Biblical Interpreters that was put out by Baker, which had over 180 women, uh, their biographies in there that who had done some work on scripture in history. And I was just astounded to discover that there were women who wrote, who had thought deeply about scripture, who had written on scripture and who had published or circulated their writings. And it wasn't always in commentary form. Often it was um, in devotional form or in poetry or through other mediums, but just to know that women were also engaged in the act of biblical interpretation. And so when I, at one point, was asked by my dean when I was working at the University of Dubuque Theological Seminary, he asked if I would teach a course one time, and it was to be a one-credit-hour course. And I thought, okay, so what am I going to do for one-credit-hour? And it occurred to me, maybe we could look at a small slice of scripture and do kind of a history of interpretation on that small slice of scripture. And I was really interested in Genesis 1 through 3, in part because I knew these students were going to be studying Hebrew in the next semester. And there's a lot of really good Hebrew wordplay in Genesis 1 through 3. So I thought I could introduce them to some Hebrew. I could introduce them to Genesis 1 through 3, which is kind of a foundational set of chapters in scripture, and we could study it in terms of the history of interpretation on this text. And I found this anthology that included Jewish, Christian, and Muslim readings on Genesis 1 through 3. And as we were making our way through the interpretations in this anthology, we came across this woman, Christine de Pizan, in the 14th century, who had done some work on Genesis 1 one through three, particularly focusing on the character of Eve. And I was just astounded, as were all of the students in the class, that there was a woman mm -hmm. who had done interpretive work on these early chapters. And her work was so different in terms of really sort of pushing back against the traditional reading of this text that I think all of us, you know, took notice of what she was saying. And then I recalled all of these women that, of course, Marion Taylor had been uh, recovering in her work. And I thought, I bet you there's more than just one woman who wrote on this text. Uh, the anthology had a few women, but most of them were later. And so it just kind of opened up a world for me where I thought, what, what if there are more women? And so I began to do some poking around and discovered, in fact, that there was this whole literary discussion that was unfolding in Europe from the 15th to the 17th century on the, the question of women, the nature and the role of women, and that both men and women had written to contribute to this literary debate. And many of these women were writing and appealing to Genesis 1 and 2 in particular in their writings. And I thought, how come all these women wrote on Genesis 1 and 2 and I did not know about it? 
So uh, I began doing some more poking and realized there were quite a number of women, not compared to men, but there were a substantial number of women in history that had written on this text. And given the fact that women read the text, I think, differently than men, I thought their voices should be heard. And so it occurred to me um, it would be really helpful to make their voices known in some sort of contemporary form. And that's sort of how the book came to shape. Yes, yes. And it it struck me that most of the time, if we are going to have some conversations about women, roles of women, gender roles, etc., in the church, we tend to start in the New Testament with Paul, right? And we're told we're supposed to interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. So I'm curious how that approach to scripture gives primacy, if you will, to Paul's letters uh, and, and how that might affect the way we understand the Genesis texts or the importance of understanding the Genesis texts. Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, as a Christian, obviously we want to read the Old Testament in light of the new, right? And um, so that is a really solid hermeneutical approach to the Old Testament. But I think it's also true that we want to read the Old Testament, uh, the New Testament in light of the old. And um, to keep in mind that Paul himself was Jewish and that his scriptures were the Old Testament. So he's thoroughly immersed in the world of the Old Testament and drawing on that to help him understand and interpret the life and person of Jesus and and work of Jesus. And so I think the women that I studied, many of them also dealt with these New Testament texts, but they, they felt very strongly that the place to begin is in the beginning and that you can't really understand these New Testament texts until you understand what is going on in the Old Testament, and particularly um, in Genesis 1. There's one woman, Leanna Starr, she's an early 20th century interpreter, and she challenged the notion that we, we, when we talk about the role of women or the nature of women, we tend to start not at the beginning, not at Genesis 1, but later, somewhere later in the canon. And her concern was that we started with Genesis 3.16 um, rather than starting with Genesis 1, or even that we would start with Genesis 2 instead of starting with Genesis 1. And what the women contended was that if you start with Genesis 1, um, you read Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 differently. And then subsequently, you read Paul differently as well, because you're starting from a different place. You're starting with a different set of assumptions about what God has divinely ordained in terms of gender roles. And so they very much challenged this idea that we can start with Paul and work our way backward and felt like the proper place to start was with Genesis 1 and work our way forward. Yeah. So. Yes. So were there things that surprised you along the way as you dove into the project? And if so, what were some of those things that surprised you? Yeah. So one of the things that I found really surprising was how clearly the women articulated that the way they were reading scripture was not just a valid way of reading scripture, but a faithful way of reading scripture. And they felt like if you read scripture rightly, 
you would come to the notion, come to believe that actually men and women were equal. They were both created in the image of God, and they were both given the commission to go out and have dominion over the earth. And so there was a sense among the women, a sense of confidence about their own reading of scripture very early on, even though they were challenging a dominant tradition. So that was one thing. And the other is how a number of them came to the conclusion and very clearly articulated this, that if men are perceived as somehow having preeminence, or if men are considered superior and women inferior, it is not because that was divinely ordained or given, but that it was because of the culture that had created this kind of scenario, created opportunities. It was socially constructed, they would have said. There was laws and conventions that sort of favored men and gave them this preeminence and these opportunities to flourish in society and in home and in church that were not given to women. And so the idea that male preeminence is a social construction And again, something that they articulated very early on in history, just the astuteness of their observations in this regard just blew me out of the water. I thought, how come I don't know these women and their writings and their observations and their wisdom? How come I didn't learn about this in all of my years of training? Yeah. Well, and I guess I was struck at how modern they sounded some of the things that they were, some of the arguments, even the way they were constructing their arguments, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, I'm reading women who wrote in the 15th or 16th century and and their arguments are things that I might've heard in a recent conversation last week about the same topic. Yeah, I will never forget um, when we first read Christine de Pizan and thinking some of the arguments that she made in the 14th century, Phyllis Tribble, brought back into the conversation in the 70s and 80s in her work on on Genesis 1, uh, 2, and 3. And and I'm just, again, amazed that we have these early examples of women making these observations and deeply saddened that we don't know about them. So it means that every generation of women has had to start from scratch, basically, reinvent the wheel. I guess I'm hoping both with Marion's project and my own work in this area that we begin to realize we have something to build on. We have giants (laughs) whose shoulders we can stand on who have gone before us. And hopefully the recovery of these women's voices will help us do that. Right. Yeah. And I think it adds even weight to what we might call a modern argument, right? To say that it's not a new argument. And some of the work that we want to do in sort of pressing the limits of gender roles and all of this, right, is not in reaction to some sort of feminist activity in the culture, but it's actually coming out of people's reading the scriptures and arguing for better interpretation of what's actually in the scripture. Yeah, so again, one of the fascinating things about these women is implicitly and sometimes explicitly, they would call the church back to the scriptures and suggest that 
if there is patriarchy, uh, if there is a sense that women are inferior or um, women are somehow secondary to men um, and shouldn't have all the rights and freedoms that men have, that that is actually an imposition of the culture on the church and not the other way around. So they argued that the church in adopting this worldview about men and women had accommodated to the culture. And they said, if we're true to our scriptures, we would live out the equality between men and women. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So this week, a friend of mine who's in seminary posted this comment on Facebook. She says, today I'm reading a bunch of theology books by men, for men, quoting men, about men. And of course, my immediate thought was, oh, you need a copy of Amanda's book. You know, why, why is it important for us to hear from women interpreters and theologians? And why have their voices been lost or overlooked? Yeah, I think part of the reason they've been lost and overlooked is because they weren't part of the establishment. So they weren't part of the academia and they weren't part of the ecclesial structures. They were populists, right? And so for many of these women, their works were very popular in their own day and were reprinted several times. And some of them even had their work reprinted over the course of several centuries, but then they got buried or lost and forgotten. And I think now we're beginning to realize what a deficit it is that we've lost all these voices. And so the attempt to kind of try and recover them. I think one of the reasons to recover them goes to a comment made by Frances Willard, who um, was a 19th century reformer. She was uh, involved in the temperance movement and then a suffragette. And she said, you know, if we want to really get at the full orbed truth of the scriptures, we need both men and women. Um, we need both of their voices at the table. And there's something profound about that, right? Like that hearing the word of God in community actually expands our understanding of the truth of the word, right? Right. So enough. the more voices we have at the table, the more diversity of voices we have at the table, the more opportunity we have to hear how God might be speaking through these scriptures to us today. And so, yeah. I think recovering women's voices is really important and including women's voices is really important so we can hear more fully the truth of God's word for us. Yes. Yeah. So did you have any group or groups in mind as you wrote the book? Uh, one thing I'm wondering even is uh, being a mother of two daughters, um, did that sort of factor into your thinking as as you're writing and as you have hopes for the book and for the book's readers? Yeah, so one of the things that I experienced while I was reading these women was just a deep sense of encouragement in having now found all these friends, these kindred spirits yes, yes. Um, in history who I felt were like this great cloud of witnesses who were encouraging me and cheering me onward. And part of the reason for writing the book was because I thought this is way too good to keep to myself. <laughs> I wanted other women to have that experience of feeling like there is a great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us cheering us onward. 
I encounter so many women, um, both when I was in campus ministry and now as a professor at seminary, who are looking for mentors who feel somewhat alone as a woman in ministry, um, who have huge questions of what does that look like and how do we do this thing of being a woman in ministry? And um, just the loneliness of that situation can be overwhelming. And so, again, to, to have these kindred spirits, even if it's in written form. <laughs> I, so I was primarily thinking of, of women when I wrote the book, and certainly my daughters factored into this because I, I had this deep longing that they would inherit the wisdom of their foremothers and be able to live out that wisdom so that they flourish in their life, right? But the other audience, I think, is just the church more generally. I think questions about gender and gender roles are at the forefront of the church today, and it seems like an ongoing conversation. And what I wanted to do was help lend some perspective to the conversation by giving a bit of a historical review, because I think sometimes we think that this conversation about gender roles and the nature of and role of women in church, home, and society is sort of a new thing. It comes out of the second wave of the feminist movement. And I want to say, no, I think <laughs> you need to go back a bit further. We've been having this conversation for a very, very long time, and it's taken different shapes and forms and emphases, but but the conversation of how do men and women relate in these different spheres of life is not a new one. And it's also one that emerged out of the church. It didn't emerge out of the secular society, putting pressure on the church to be something it's not. It's It emerged out of the reading of the scriptures and women saying, I think, I think God intended more for us than what the church is saying. And um, so we'd like to have this conversation. And we think it's a worthwhile conversation to have. So I guess I'm hoping as these conversations continue to unfold in the Christian community, that this book will help people understand that this is not a new conversation. Mm -hmm. And that even the idea of women and women's flourishing in this, in this world, in church, society, and home, that's not a new concept you know, of women having equal rights and freedoms. Those are not new concepts that they have a long history that come from our own communities in the church. Yeah. 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 They come from Genesis 1, right? Yeah. <laughs> come from the Bible. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, yeah. you, you know that, that our audience is primarily women in the academic space, uh, graduate students, professional students, faculty for many of them, Christians or not, the Bible and or the Christian faith has not been seen as a friend, but, you know, sort of as the oppressor. Yet your book is titled The Gospel According to Eve or The Good News, right? The Good News According to Eve. So what good news does Eve have for these women? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's funny because I come from a fairly conservative tradition, and in my own growing up, it never occurred to me to think of the Bible as an oppressor. And it actually wasn't really until I was in campus ministry and a young woman came to me and said, oh, no, I could never live 
by the Bible. I could never consider the Bible authoritative because it is oppressive to women that I went, whoa, (laughs) that was kind of an eye-opening moment for me to realize that the way that the Christian community has communicated the gospel to women has come with strings attached. And um, so that our witness to the world in some ways has been compromised because we're peddling a gospel whereby women are made to feel less, made to feel small, made to feel diminished, rather than freed to flourish and live as God had created them to be. And so what was exciting to me was to realize there's this whole history of women who thought that the issue was not actually the Bible. The issue was was the way that the Bible had been interpreted and the way that the church had accommodated to the culture. And what they saw in the Bible, and they would say rightly interpreted. So if the Bible is rightly interpreted, it's not an oppressor to women. That in fact, it's moving in a direction Uh, whereby women are invited to find their freedom in Christ, where they are are called like men to contribute to the culture, where where women are equal with men and created with honor and value and dignity and all of that. So, and particularly these women pointed to Eve. They were like, look at this woman. She's She was created to be the crowning glory of God's creation. And whatever you think of that interpretation of Genesis 2, they found in Eve a woman who was especially blessed by God. And they had all kinds of reasons for articulating that. And even in Genesis 3, they would point to things like, well, Eve was given the honor of participating with God in his mission to redeem the world by being the one who would be the bearer of the seed who would ultimately conquer the serpent, right? And and lose the serpent's head. So even in that, they saw that God had given Eve special graces along the way. And I thought, well, how come that is never preached? (laughs) (laughs) How come God's special attention and love for Eve is never highlighted? So yeah, these women certainly found in Eve lots to be grateful for and lots to hang on to in terms of this being redemptive for them. Um, This feeling like uh, an example of how God really does love, value, honor, and give dignity to women. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I'm curious, are there one or two favorite women from the project that are in the book that you might want to mention to us, you know, why you picked them out as your favorite, how their work might have affected change or even how it affected you, perhaps? Yeah, so do I have to limit it to one or two? <laughs> well, yes, because then people won't buy your book if you tell, oh. if you tell all of the stories. <laughs> okay, well, because one of the things I found is every woman I studied was just so clever. And they had these clever sayings or remarks or quips that I was like, man, I could just gather all of these. They're just so profound and beautiful. But yeah, so a couple of them that I would highlight. uh, One is Lucy Hutchinson. She was a 17th century British woman. She was a Puritan. And she wrote this extended poem 
that similar to or comparable to Milton's Paradise Lost. And hers is called Order and Disorder. And it was a meditation on creation. And she gets to Genesis 3 as she's sort of reflecting on the fall and the sin and then the consequences that are laid out for the man and the woman in terms of sin and reflecting on what happens after that between Adam and Eve. And she could imagine that what could happen is that Adam would hold Eve with disdain, that that Adam would blame Eve for plunging them into sin, right? But instead, she wants to give a different image of what could have happened because she wants to give a different image for how men and women could relate, particularly in the context of marriage. And so she puts these words into Adam's mouth. She says, let's not blame each other, but give each other aid. And thank the Lord that he hasn't left us single in our distress. When fear chills thee, my hope shall make thee warm. When I grow faint, thou shalt my courage arm. When both our spirits at a low ebb are, we both will join in mutual fervent prayer. And so she paints this picture of a marriage relationship that is mutually supportive of one another, rather than one lording it over the other, one blaming the other. So it's a very different way of thinking about marriage from the context in which she finds herself. And she's trying to give a different way of thinking about what happened in the garden and relate that to how we might think about marriage today. And I Mm -hmm. I thought it was Mm -hmm. kind of beautiful. Yes. This idea of, you know, we live in a broken and fallen world and it's going to be tough. Instead of blaming each other and letting that tear us apart, how about we let that bring us together, you know, and be a comfort to one another and recognize that as God's gift to each of us. So I thought that was kind of beautiful. Yes. Yeah. That was lovely. So that's one. I'd like to name one more. The other one is Catherine Booth in the 19th century. And she's writing on and making a defense for uh, women preaching. And uh, at one point she says something, she asks the question that I have never heard anyone ask. And that is in terms of our stance about women preaching, and she's writing in a context where women are not welcome on the pulpit. She says, what if the church is wrong about this? about their stance on women. What if the church has gotten it wrong and actually what they're doing is thwarting the mission of God by preventing women from preaching? And I I just, I'm like, that is such a profound question, right? Like that she would recognize there's an opportunity cost to the choices the church has made. And it's possible that we've made a choice that actually goes against the will of God, that we are actually thwarting the mission of God by keeping women from going out and spreading the gospel. So I think that's a really helpful question to ask. Yeah, that's great. Well, in closing, we ask all of our interviewees if there is a set of words, a song, a poem, a scripture, etc., that's been particularly meaningful to you in recent days that you might want to share with us. 
Yeah. So one text that sort of has carried me and been on my heart probably for for most of my adult life has been uh, the one from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. And the old has passed away and the new, everything has become new. And I cling to that verse because it gives me hope that even not just thinking about me personally, but even in male-female relationships, even in gender relations, Christ is at work redeeming that, making all things new. And one of my great longings in this time, in this day and age, 2019, I think that we need the church to speak into this issue of what it means to be male and female, what it means to be men and women, and to give a witness to the good news of the gospel in this area. And um, I think there is an opportunity for the church to do that. I think our society has sort of put on women also expectations Mm -hmm. that are not healthy and put on men expectations that are not healthy. And it would be so great if the church could kind of give a healthier version of what it now and bear witness to the gospel in that way. And so I just think of Christ making all things new, even in this area of our lives and how we, and the, the text actually goes on and talks about us being involved in the ministry of reconciliation and ambassadors of the gospel. And I think out of that newness that we can do that, we mm-hmm. can be ambassadors of the gospel in this area of gender right. relations. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and even I asked the question earlier about good news, right? This is part of what's good news is being able to offer a different answer to some of these questions that are being asked in the culture that end up being in some ways bondage, right? The way they're being answered ends up keeping people in bondage as opposed to freedom in Christ and and new. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I hope that they can find their identity in Christ, you know, mm-hmm. as a woman of God and that their being female is not a handicap, but a blessing and an opportunity and part of who God created them to be and why, you know, part of how they live out their life, not in the ways that the culture has defined what it means to be a woman, but in the way that God intended for yes. her to be them daughters to be women. Yes. Yeah. Well, I am so glad that you are at Calvin and that you are teaching students in the Old Testament and thinking about things from this perspective. I'm just grateful to think about that there are men and women who are being exposed uh, to the sorts of things that you're thinking about. So thank you for being there in this place and raising these questions. And thanks for the book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I appreciate the questions at the end so that if people want to have discussion, you know, provided them you know, a way to start a conversation. And then you also did this great biographical work, a little snippet about all these different women that's in the back too. So there's a way for us, as you mentioned, to be our friends, right? So we read about them in your book, but then we also can read a little bit more about them and and who they are in the back. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for your willingness to have this conversation uh, with me today. It's been a pleasure. It's And a real delight. Thanks so much, Karen. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. 
This is Caroline Trisick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.